0: Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Ashley. I serve as one of the pastors here at Parkway. This morning we will be considering 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, which says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So last Saturday, Carl, Zach, and I came up to the church to record uh, the sermon and the theological equipping audio since we're not currently meeting due to the COVID crisis. Meanwhile, Tim was in Germany, which was unfortunate, not only because it meant that uh, he was potentially stuck in a uh, pandemic hotspot, but also because none of us really know how to operate the AV stuff. That's Tim's way of maintaining job security. Never train anyone to do anything, so we're dependent on him. So Tim wasn't here. Neither was Jared. He's kind of the resident youngster of the team, and I think it was nap time or something. But Carl and Zach and I love you, so we came up here on a Saturday to record audio, so that even if we couldn't meet as a church, we could still at least be edified by truth. And afterwards, I needed to run by Target. I'm not sure if you've been to Target lately, but it was a lot of fun. Not like hanging out with your friends, fun, fun more like working out till you throw up fun. Sometimes going to Target is relaxing. This time it was not. It was like a scene from a post-apocalyptic movie. The shelves were empty. People were sprinting into the store from the parking lot, marauding bands of zombies and wild animals roamed the aisles. Speaking of aisles, while walking down the canned soup aisle, I noticed all of the vegetable and chicken noodle was gone. They had plenty of split pea and cream of shrimp. What the heck is cream of shrimp? Whatever it is, apparently people would rather just starve than try it. And as I was pondering this, there was this young lady that was talking to her boyfriend, and she said, Oh my gosh, if the coronavirus doesn't get me, all of this sodium will. So she seemed like a lot of fun to talk to. And a few minutes later, I passed a group of teenage guys who were stocking up on all the essentials, mostly soft drinks and chips and candy bars. I like to imagine that their parents encouraged them to buy some canned goods, and then they thought cleverly, well, both Dr. Pepper and Pringles are in cans. And then as I passed by the paper goods, I saw something like a scene in a movie where a solid sheet of paper blows in slow motion across a barren wasteland. There was no toilet paper, no toilet wipes, no sanitizing wipes. Instead, there were hastily made signs limiting customers to buying one because of hoarding. Now, for the record, I wasn't there to hoard. I was just getting essentials that we were running, running low on. In particular, I needed to buy diapers because our regular delivery from Amazon was delayed. So I got a box of diapers for my son. I got some pull-ups for my daughter. And as I was getting ready to check out, my wife calls and asks if I can get some diapers for Tim and Kelsey because they're in Germany and not sure when they will get back. And at this moment I realized that I'm going to look like the hoarder I was just judging in my heart. I'm now having to buy diapers for four kids. So I sheepishly go back to the diaper aisle and get another two boxes, which makes four total. And as I'm walking down the aisle, people literally look at my cart up and down and shake their heads in disgust. Literally, physically, people actually did that. Anyway, it was a whole lot of fun. And the reason that I mention this is because it reminds me of something that Charles Spurgeon said about our passage today. And speaking of 1 John as a whole, he said that the book was like a letter perfumed with love. God's love for us, our love for God, our love for others. But he said that this passage that we're considering today contains the sound of war, just like my little trip to Target. So let's pray and then we'll dive into the passage uh, together. Even though we're not, we're not actually gathered together, I'll ask you to do as we often do. Will you take just a second to pray for yourself? Pray that the Lord would give you uh, an attentive mind and uh, affections in your heart for His Word. And then we also pray that for those uh, others who are listening that uh, again even though we're not gathered that the lord would still meet with us and encourage us and then would you pray for me for boldness and steadfastness so father i thank you for the opportunity this uh this morning to sit under your word will you edify our minds and encourage our hearts through your son and by your spirit we ask these things because you're good and you do good so we ask in Christ's name amen well, let's look in 1 John chapter 5 verse 4 which says for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith and we'll look at that first phrase for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world And as we begin in the beginning, we notice the little word for there. So what's the for? For. Well, this word points us back in the context to what we talked about last week, where we read in verse three, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Bear in mind that verse divisions in your Bible are rather arbitrary, so if you were reading this in the original letter, it would say, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome for or because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. In other words, what we read in verse 4 is the explanation of what we've already read in verse 3. So how does the phrase, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, How does that phrase explain the idea that God's commandments are not burdensome? We talked about this a bit last week, that we have a new nature as a result of regeneration, being born again, and that new nature finds the commands of God good and wise and satisfying. How so? Well, let me give you this illustration. The other day, I watched A Bug's Life for the first time ever, and I watched it with my daughter. And she was super locked in for about 20 minutes But then suddenly, she said, I don't like bugs. And just like that, her interest was lost and she went away and did something else. But I was locked in and I kept watching. And there was eventually this scene where uh, this huge fat caterpillar finally emerges from his cocoon and he's still a caterpillar. Except now he has comically small wings, which kind of stinks, he's waited his entire life to become a beautiful butterfly and something apparently went wrong. But that image, the image of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly helps explain what John is talking about. If you tell a caterpillar to fly, that is burdensome. He can't do it. But when he becomes a butterfly, it's no longer a burden. It's a joy, unless you're the unfortunate mutant caterpillar from a bug's life. Well, that image is like what rebirth or regeneration does for the Christian. When we are born again, we receive new eyes, we receive new ears that are able to see and to hear God's commands. We receive a new mind that's able to understand God's commands, a new heart that's able to love God's command. Don't get me wrong, we still sin, we still disobey, we have new minds, we have new hearts, but we also still have the residue of the old flesh, the old nature. But even so, there is now a sense in which we can obey God's commands So there's an old saying that we've mentioned many times before. In fact, Zach mentioned it last week and it goes, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So that's the context. God's commands are no longer burdensome for those who have been born of God because we have new minds and new hearts, a new nature, even as we wrestle uh, wrestle with the residue of sin. Now, how is this related to overcoming the world in the context? What does that mean? To answer that, we have to consider both what John means by the word overcome and also what he means by world. So let's start with the word overcome. Why does John use this word? Well, overcome is a very Johannine word. We've already counted it a couple of times in 1 John. 1 John 2.13, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. 1 John 4.4, little children, you are uh, from God and have overcome them, for he who is uh, in you is greater than he who is in the world. This word overcome is also a very theologically significant word in the book of Revelation, To each of the seven churches addressed in the opening chapters, Jesus says to the one who conquers. That word conquers is the exact same Greek word as is translated overcomes in 1 John. And I think the primary reason that John uses this, this word overcome here in 1 John chapter five goes all the way back to his gospel. So in the gospel of John chapter 16 verse 33, Uh, John writes these things, being spoken by Jesus, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. By the way, lest we think that overcoming the world means that we're immune to sickness, immune to suffering or poverty or death, this is a very important verse because in it Christ promises what? Tribulation. Whatever it means that we overcome, it doesn't mean that we don't suffer. So some guy ever tells you that overcoming the world means health and wealth and prosperity, just remember John 16. Well, back to 1 John. The idea uh, is that Christ has overcome and as a result of our union with him, as a result of our union with Christ, we too overcome. We don't overcome in our own strength, but rather in our association with, with Christ. Again, we see here hints of this, uh, this biblical pr- principle that we call union with Christ. And we've talked before about how this is the fountainhead from which every blessing flows to you. Your justification, your redemption, your sanctification, love, grace, mercy, all of these things are bound up in Christ. And since we are in Christ, we are united to Christ, we are thus the beneficiaries. Christ is the heir and we share in the inheritance by virtue of our union with him. So we overcome because we are in him and he has overcome. But what is it that we overcome? John says that we overcome the world. Well, what does that mean? One of the most important facts that you need to know as you study the Bible is that words don't have inherent meaning apart from context. If I ask you to to define the word trunk, You would need to ask a follow-up question. You would need to know if I'm talking about an elephant or a swimsuit or a suitcase or a tree. Words mean different things in different contexts. We talk about this often. For example, a run is good if you're trying to get in shape. A run is bad if you're wearing pantyhose. You wanna lose a few pounds if you're trying to get in shape. You wanna gain a few pounds if you're investing in the British economy. My son is a man if we're distinguishing men from women. But he's not a man if we were distinguishing boys from men. And so this principle is really important because sometimes the word world is something good. We are to love the world, if by that we mean that we are to love people and to appreciate the gifts that God has given us. But other times the, the Bible uses this word world with negative connotations. A couple of months ago we preached 1 John 2.16 And we read this, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. So in that context, the world is evil. And so John tells us don't love the world because the world in this sense is a sinful disposition of the created order in rebellion against its creator. It's marked by lust and greed and pride. And that negative usage of the word world applies to 1 John 5 as well. So overcoming the world doesn't mean that we shun the good things that God gives, but it means that we refrain from the gravitational pull of sin. In the context, keeping the commandments of God is related to overcoming the world. Well, how so? I think it's because all of the commandments of God are summed up in the command to love God and what? Love others. So think about that for a second. Think about the virtues of the world that we just read about. Lust and greed and pride from 1 John 2.16. What do all of those have in common? They're all focused on self. They're all born out of narcissism. Self-love. So John's point here, I think, is that this self-love, this tendency uh, toward this inward disposition is overcome By virtue of the new birth. Not only does the new birth enable you to love God, but to love others. And when you love God and when you love others, you are fulfilling and obeying a summary of all the commandments of God. So here's John's point. If you're regenerated, if you're born of God, then you have a new nature. That new nature opposes the virtues of the world. The world values pride and conceit and selfishness. Whereas the new nature is marked by humility and love which overcomes those worldly desires and thus is able to fulfill God's commands which are summarized in the commands to love God and love others. Let me repeat that summary again because it's really important that you grasp the logical and the theological flow of John's argument here. The text and the context is saying that if you're born of God, then you've been given a new nature. That new nature opposes the virtues of the world. Virtues such as pride and greed and lust. The new nature is marked by humility and love, which thus fulfills God's commands to love God and love others. In other words, telling someone who hasn't been born of God to love God and love others is like telling a caterpillar to fly. Whereas telling those who are born of God, who are regenerated, who are born again, who do have this new nature to do so is like issuing the same command to a butterfly. Let's keep going. First John 5, 4, the, the, the second part there, and it says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We've talked about this word overcome already, but let's look at it a bit more. In the Greek, the word victory and the word overcome are actually related. Victory is the noun form of the verb overcome. In Greek, the actual word is Nike, from which uh, the brand Nike gets its name. In the original language, the passage reads kind of like, and this is the Nike, which is Nikeed the world. If I'm the CEO of Nike, that would have been my slogan instead of just do it. So what, what is the victory there? What says it's our faith? So yet another reason just do it isn't a great slogan. It isn't our effort. It isn't our discipline or our drive or our sweat or our blood or our works or our labor that overcomes the world, it's our faith. How so? I think the way it does so is by seeing through the lies of the world through, uh, to the promises of God. Years ago, I heard an illustration from a pastor I really like named John Piper. And so uh, as I was thinking about this, rather than spin my wheels trying to come up with a, a better example, I thought, I'll just share this with you because I think it vividly uh, depicts what's going on Here. So imagine uh, that uh, you have this treasured ebony brooch. Uh, It was a gift from your great grandmother. It's the only family heirloom that you have and one day your house catches on fire and you have time to grab one thing. So you leave your cat to fend for itself and you grab that brooch and you run outside. And as you watch your house burn down, you absentmindedly caress the brooch for comfort. And suddenly a fire truck shows up and in the headlights of the fire truck you look down and to your horror you notice that you aren't holding your great-grandmother's ebony brooch but instead a cockroach. So you scream and you throw it down and my daughter comes by and crushes it because she hates bugs. Well that's what's happening in this verse. Faith is the result of the new birth. We talked about that in, uh, in verse one of chapter five. Being born of God is the cause of our belief, so we're reborn, and the consequence of that is faith. And that faith consists of a new nature that apprehends truth. That's the headlight in the analogy, allowing us to see that what the world offers isn't actually a brooch, but a roach. The world cannot offer true joy or life or lasting pleasure. It's all a mirage. So what faith does is help us to see through the lies of the world in light of the greater good of the gospel. For example, consider Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, which says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Notice the language there, language of reward and pleasure. What did faith do for Moses? It provided lenses to see through the empty promises of Egypt so that he might consider the greater, greater wealth and reward of God. That's what faith does for us. It allows us to see through the empty promises of the world. This idea permeates the Bible. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to forsake perishable treasures on earth. Why? Because God is a cosmic killjoy? Of course not. He says to do so for the sake of imperishable treasures in heaven. Or in Matthew 13, the kingdom is described as a treasure in a field which a man sells everything to buy. Or what about all the times that Jesus tells us to deny ourselves? Not because we are to be masochists, but rather so that we gain. Gain what? That we gain life and joy and goodness and eternal pleasure and delight. In Philippians, Paul says, to die is gain. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of Christ. In Romans 8, Paul says that the glory that is to come so surpasses any present suffering as to make comparison futile. In first Peter, the apostle says that it's faith in future grace which overcomes fear and anxiety amidst present suffering. This language permeates Scripture. In fact, all the way back in Jeremiah 2, the prophet describes sin as forsaking living waters in order to drink from broken cisterns. What is sin in its essence? It's a forsaking of infinite and eternal joy for the sake of temporary relief. In other words, the irony of sinful pleasure is is that it isn't pleasurable enough. As C.S. Lewis once said, we are far too easily pleased. But what faith does is it sees through these lies. It sees through these empty promises of the world. That's how faith overcomes the world. So now let's connect this to the context of love for others that we've been talking about here in 1 John as we mentioned earlier, the world entices us toward self-protection and self-promotion and self-centeredness and self-love, but faith overcomes this tendency by seeing how futile it actually is. What does it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What a, tra- a sad and tragic exchange. So regarding the command to love, Jesus says, to give to the one who asks of you, Now, that isn't a universal command. We've talked about that before. If you ask me for a gun so that you can shoot someone, I'm not supposed to say, well, Jesus said so. Here you go, happy hunting. Or if you ask me for some money to buy heroin, I'm not gonna give it to you. Or if Carl asks if he can lead worship for Easter, I'm not gonna say yes. We don't always give to those who ask of us. But in general, we should love in such a way as to allow faith to refocus our concern for our own self and our own desires and needs and our own families and direct our attention and our affection to others. Why? Because faith remembers the reward. Faith knows that our hope is not in hoarding. Faith knows that our hope is in a divine helper and thus we help others. And this is especially relevant right now. We are in the midst of a pandemic. So how do we love in the midst of our present circumstances. By the way, we wrote a blog on that this week. I'd encourage you to check it out if you haven't already. But basically, there are innumerable expressions of love. Most of them are really obvious. I'll give a few. Number one, wash your hands. Number two, don't hoard uh, toilet paper and hand sanitizer in the midst of a shortage. By the way, why are stores running out? Because they were washed out in a flood or a hurricane, because they were destroyed in a huge fire? No. The reason is because we're fearful creatures who love ourselves rather than others. There's no problem with supply of these goods. There's a problem with the human heart and with hoarding. A third way you can uh, love others, call your neighbors, call your friends, call your family. In particular, check in with those who are most vulnerable. See how they're doing. Don't throw a huge COVID-19 party with a thousand of your closest friends. If at all possible, do your job. Live your life. Don't change everything about your life, but also don't change nothing. Consider others. But here's the big thing. Know your own tendencies. Know your own weaknesses. Some of us default toward a, a form of narcissism that manifests itself by hoarding and boarding ourselves up at home. Some of us default toward a form that manifests itself by completely ignoring the government and medical community and not considering others who are more susceptible to the disease. Although these uh, expressions look completely different, they're both fruit of the same root of self love. They both express this innate human tendency to love ourselves rather than love others. We don't want to be inconvenienced, we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to treat others as more significant than ourselves. We don't want to die to ourselves. We, don't, we, we want to do what feels good. But in doing so, we forget the promises of God and thus forsake an opportunity for greater joy. So I'm not saying you can't buy an extra pack of toilet paper. Be prepared, get a few extra. But I am saying that there is no fear in love. And love involves what's do, doing what's best for others even when it costs you. Sometimes love means that we social distance for the sake of others, but sometimes love means that we go visit the friend or family member who is sick. Regardless, we're always compelled by the gospel to run toward love, and faith is what fuels such love, knowing that there is not one single solitary sacrifice that will not be repaid a hundred or thousandfold by God whether that sacrifice is staying home or going to work or a thousand other decisions we have to make each day. Regardless of the sacrifice, love calculates the risk by keeping in mind the eternal promises of God. In other words, love is eschatological. Faith fuels our love by reminding our hearts of God's love and grace and our ultimate hope and reward. And thus faith overcomes the sinful uh, trajectory and pull of the world let's keep going. 1 John 5, 5 says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? One of the things that we've often noted about 1 John is how it blows up this idea that you can really ever separate head from heart or faith from love. Those two are far too closely intertwined to untangle. It's kind of like John is tying a knot, confecting, uh, connecting faith and love throughout the book. And he's not content with a single knot, and so he ties another, a double knot, then a triple, then a quadruple, and so forth. And by the time you get to the end of the book, there's no way to untie all of the knots. And that's a really good thing because attempting to unravel the relationship between faith and love or head and heart is an exercise in futility and foolishness. So notice, who is it that overcomes? Not just the one with the biggest heart, not just the one who loves the hardest, rather the one who believes. Believes what? Believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now we've talked about this before. This isn't an exhaustive test. Elsewhere John adds that we have to believe that Jesus is the Christ that Jesus has come in the flesh. In other words, there are some beliefs that are so central, so fundamental to the faith that to disbelieve them is to forsake the faith itself. But notice the logical flow here. Jesus is the one who has overcome the world and it's our faith which unites us to Jesus so it stands to reason that only those who have faith in the true Jesus will overcome They have to have faith in the one who has overcome. They have to believe that Jesus is the son of God. In other words, the false teachers, the heretics that we encounter throughout 1 John do not overcome because their faith isn't in the one who overcomes. Their picture of Jesus is far too small. We've given this illustration before, but imagine the world is broken into two categories. There are lots of ways that you could do so. Conservatives and liberals, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, Texans and pagans, but there's a much more fundamental distinction than any of these. In fact, absolutely everything in existence falls into one of these two categories, creator and creation. Trees and animals and angels and caterpillars and cockroaches, even viruses, all belong to the realm of creation. So here is the fundamental question that distinguishes Christianity from Islam Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and every other religion, where does Jesus belong? Is he just an exalted teacher? Is he just a good man? Is he just another creature, a part of creation? Or is he God? Is he the son of God? Is he the second person of the Trinity? Is he the creator? The Bible is absolutely clear on this. Colossians chapter 1 Starting in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Let's stop right there for a second because this can be confusing. Firstborn of all creation doesn't mean that he is created. The word firstborn clarifies clarifies the phrase. The firstborn implies authority. So firstborn of all creation means something like firstborn over all creation, which is actually how some versions of the Bible translate the phrase. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the historic orthodox perspective on Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Here's the point I'm trying to make. What you believe about Christ is essential it's important. It is an insignificant fodder to be merely debated in seminaries, but rather a feast to be treasured in every heart. Let me demonstrate that by giving a little summary of John's argument in the context. Assume for a second that Jesus is not the Christ. Assume for a second that Jesus is not the Son of God. So what? Well, then he's not overcome the world because only the creator can overcome creation. What does that mean? Well, if he's not overcome the world, then your faith in him has not overcome the world. And if your faith in him hasn't overcome the world, then you're still held hostage to the gravitational pull of fleshly pride and greed and lust. And if you're still enslaved to yourself, then the commandments to love others are burdensome. And if the commandments to love others are burdensome, then you can't really love others. And if you don't love others, then how can you love God? And if you don't love God, you're in big trouble. In other words, these are like dominoes. You knock one down and they all begin to tumble. So perhaps now you see why John ties these knots so tightly between head and heart because your theological convictions are not mere answers to trivial pursuit. They are the foundation of your eternal hope and that eternal hope is what informs and empowers our present obedience. Now this is kind of a strange passage to preach in the midst of a pandemic. Why didn't we interrupt 1 John to preach on suffering or fear or anxiety? We could have. We certainly might do so in the future, although we aren't planning on it. In fact, I would argue that this passage is actually really relevant to where we are now. I'll tell you how by describing my, uh, my email inbox. I typically like to keep my inbox as empty as possible, but right now, it's full of emails, and it's full of emails in particular from companies telling me how they are responding to coronavirus. Coronavirus as if I'm waiting around with bated breath, just wondering what Discount Tire and Benihana are doing to respond to this crisis. By the way, what's bated breath? I need to look that up, that sounds gross. Anyway, you probably don't care all that much what precautions your bank is taking or what advice your telephone provider has for dealing with the pandemic, but we should all care about God's perspective. So what are some truths we need to hear this morning in light of this passage. What truths from this passage interact with our current cultural landscape? I'll mention four things. Number one, we need to be reminded that God is in control. Christ is in control. He is the Son of God with authority over all things, even microscopic cells and viruses, even death, even the stock market. So our hope is not in vaccines or human strategies of social distancing or governmental intervention. Those, those are all good things. That's not where our ultimate hope lies. Our hope is in Christ. He is sovereign and he is good. We don't have to know how to reconcile his sovereignty and goodness with suffering, but we do have to confess that both are true. By the way, if you haven't already done so, listen to our theological equipping this morning. We talked about what is uh, called theodicy, which is the justification of the goodness and love of God in the midst of suffering and evil. But that's number one, Christ is in control. Number two, related to this, our hope is secure. If you're in Christ, then you're safe. You've already experienced the ultimate social distancing in a sense. You've been raised with Christ into the heavenly places. That absolutely doesn't mean that you can't get sick or won't die but it does mean that neither coronavirus nor cancer nor bankruptcy nor anything else can ultimately defeat you. As Paul writes, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor, th- uh, nor anything present nor anything to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So your hope is secure because your hope is in Christ and he's secure. Number three, The consequence of believing, numbers one and two above, means that fear and anxiety and panic and freaking out are not legitimate options. Love drives out fear. Faith drives out fear. Fear multiplies in the dark, but the light reveals that God is loving and God is good and God is in control. Where we are prone to anxiety and fear, we need the light of God's goodness and love and sovereignty to shine in our hearts and minds. So maybe that means you get off Facebook or Twitter or Fox News or CNN for a bit so that you can dwell upon the goodness and grace of God. Number four, last thing. There's a whole lot of uncertainty out there There's uncertainty that we feel as a church. When should we as a church start to meet again? Should you be getting together with other friends and family to fellowship and worship and hang out? If so, how often and how many? These are complex questions. Even the experts don't agree on them. But this passage and indeed the greater context of 1 John helps to clear away most of the clutter by providing us a helpful criteria to uh, assess our actions. And that is asking this question, what is most loving? Not how do I protect myself at all costs? How do I protect my family? How do I protect my friends? How do I protect my possessions or comfort or convenience? But how do I demonstrate hope and love toward others and faith in God in the midst of this mess? That probably means that you stay home a bit more. But it also probably means that some of you have to leave home and take risks to help others. It might mean that you work from home if you have the kind of job where that's possible. For others of you, it might mean that you go into work. Walking in wisdom takes wisdom. There's no one hard and fast rule except this. Fear God and love others. So may we be a people who are more and more transformed by the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to lay down our preferences and privileges for the sake of loving others even as we consider the greater reward of the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you uh, for these truths that we see uh, in the text today, that uh, your son is the son of God, that Jesus is the son of God, that he has overcome the world, and that uh, by virtue of our faith, we too overcome the world. And so I pray that you would help us to not be fearful. I pray that you'd help us to be faithful. That you'd help us in the midst of this present circumstance, this present storm, to know that you are the, an anchor for our souls, that we might hope in you and trust in you and love others. So would you help our little church? Would you help our nation? Would you help our world? We confess that we need you and you're good. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.